Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and not everything is a teachable moment. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I was the captain of my high school math team, and I was into solving the Abraxas conjecture, but only the early proofs. You probably haven't heard of them. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of hegemonic stability theory and Hamiltonian spite. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about aliens, also Waterworld, in addition to finally... Oh my god! Oh my god! Ah! Villanueva's Dune, which I have been waiting for all summer, Mm -hmm. as though it was a religious holiday, Dan. We have lots of ideas about other stuff. We are also into taking suggestions, which you can offer us via Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. We have a Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, tell us about our Patreon page. You would want to visit our Patreon page, Anna, mostly because that way you become a patron. And there are benefits to patronage, including early access to podcasts, access to swag, also access to the Discord channel, which contains all of the other patrons. uh, And it's a lively, interesting discussion group. There are also our monthly AMAs. And then finally, once we reach 250 patrons, and we are more than halfway there, we will do another special patrons-only episode, a topic chosen by those of you who have decided to become patrons. I will add that if you are already a patron and you want to help the show out even more, tell your friends and neighbors and rate and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts. That is a way that other people discover us. Today, Dan, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about Apple TV's foundation. Because look, Anna, it's another attempt to take an allegedly unfilmable sci-fi classic and film it. And on it, just a side note here, there seem to be an awful lot of unfilmable sci-fi <laughs> classics. I'm just pointing that out. You know, we've had this... Con- I feel, I'm feeling like we have a sense of deja vu in terms of this conversation. Yeah. Also, interestingly enough, Apple Plus seems hell-bent on cornering the sci-fi market. I mean, between this, C, For All Mankind, and then I think the upcoming Invasion. And also, I feel like we're, we're back in sort of our natural rhythm because this is yet another piece of sci-fi content where Anna has read the books and I have not. But I have to offer a disclaimer, which is that I read the first book and it was so boring, I don't remember. Like, (laughs) I remember that it was boring. I read it for some of the same reasons we're talking about the series, which is people fucking love this series. Mm. Like, I remember my dad reading it, and now I have to talk to my dad about it because your dad, the mathematician, on it. My dad, the mathematician. (laughs) I want to see what he thought of it. When he's want to see what he thought of the quote unquote math. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Anna and I are going to have some issues with the math soon, very soon in this podcast. I went back to the Wikipedia summary of the book to kind of remind myself of what happened in it. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is the Wikipedia entry doesn't do justice to how boring the book was. <laughs> and the only kind of comparison I can make is imagine Game of Thrones yeah. with no magic, no sex. And no battle scenes. Also no dragons. And no dragons. Just nothing but like the political maneuvering. And also also a political maneuvering done by characters you don't care about. Yeah, okay. See, I was a, you know, you're talking to a political science professor. So like talking about political maneuvering, that's my jam. But like, if there's no interesting characters, yeah, I'm not going to really be into it. And there's like, there's the stakes seem very, I mean, (laughs) he posits stakes, Mm -hmm. you know, like he tells us about the stakes. He informs us there are stakes. Right, where you don't actually see the stakes develop, which is what happens in a good TV show or a good book. But I will say, in some ways, this is an opportunity. I mean, you know, when you have a flawed classic, adapting it is a way in which you can potentially, presumably, get an interesting spin on it. 
So let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, if I am correct, last week we talked about uh, Dark City in which David Goyer had a screenwriting credit or a partial screenwriting credit. It's David Goyer week two. Yeah, it's it's Goyer half month. It's Goyer Palooza. <laughs> it's Goyer Palooza here on Space the Nation. Yeah, so I'll just go through a little bit of the unfilmableness story <laughs> of this series and then talk just a little tiny bit about the book series. So... First of all, you should know that he wrote Man of Steel, the Zack Snyder Man of Steel. I know you're somewhat of a defender of that movie, I believe. I, like, it's you, you liked it more than most. I guess so. I, there were interesting parts of it, is, is the way I would put it. I mean, there, it's flawed in a variety of ways. So yes. people were not super excited about hearing <laughs> that he was going to adopt this. Yeah. And it does have, as one of the articles I read put it, a long history of abortive attempts. Going back to the 90s when New Line was going to do a version. Then in 2010, Roland Emmerich was going to do a version, which would have had more explosions for sure lots I, of I em- I, would have lots of galaxy ending i'm pretty sure yeah he would have added more explosions and then dante harper in 2011 that's the director of akira hmm. and then in 2014 jonathan nolan hmm. was going to do an adaptation for hbo and he did westworld instead interesting so and Goyer was actually offered the chance to adapt it twice, and he didn't want to because he, he didn't think there was a uh, large enough palette to tell the story. I should say canvas, a large enough canvas mm-hmm. to tell the story. A miniseries or a movie wouldn't do it. And then, coincidentally, he saw Game of Thrones and its popularity and thought, well, you know what, if we can take up to 60, 70, or 80, and that's his numbering. He said that. <laughs> no, I've seen that in interviews too, yeah. He said... You know, if we can take 60, 70, or 80 hours to tell a story, then maybe we can tell the Foundation story. We'll talk more, of course, about how much we like this. And I enjoyed watching it. Now, 80 hours does sound like a long time. But, (laughs) and then all over Twitter, you see people commenting on the reason why this is watchable and filmable, let's say, is because it does have the emotion characters that the books don't. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Goyer knew that going in. And I just have a list of the reasons why people have said it's unfilmable, (laughs) which is no real characters, no fights. Mm -hmm. It's about math. That's what people who don't understand math say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Show us you don't know anything about math without saying you don't know anything about math. Yes. Yes. It's not about math, but it is about esoteric assertions, let's say. Oh, I like that. Okay. Uh, and also, the book itself was written over 50 years in bits and pieces by Asimov. And he said of it, it's a kind of history of the future. It is not completely consistent, since I did not plan consistency to begin with. So there you go. It won the Hugo Award for the Best All-Time Series, which was in 1966. I don't know if they, they award that multiple times. That would be kind of weird. Yeah. And Paul Krugman wrote the introduction for a reprint collection. Interesting. Hi, Paul. I know you're listening. You know, if anyone knows him, I think he would enjoy this podcast. Oh, I think he would, yes. Just pass it on. Uh, And then just lastly, we won't spend a ton of time on this because I could go into very disgusting detail, but Isaac Asimov was a fucking creep. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, I don't mean to laugh at that. (laughs) Yeah. No, he was known at sci-fi conventions as the man of a hundred hands. I read one anecdote where, you know, someone went up to to introduce themselves and he shook that person's girlfriend's breast rather than hand. Ah. 
He had affairs, multiple affairs, and, and also like basically hit on every woman that he ever met. Um, lots of butt patting and unwanted kissing. I, I'm already going on too yes. long. Let's just say creep. But we have already decided sort of as a policy of the show mm-hmm. that we will take into account the behavior of creators. But we really do want to look at their creations. Yes, agreed. So, and speaking of looking at their creations, Dan... Let's get started on the plot of this fucking thing. All right. So we are reviewing the first uh, two episodes of this show, to be fair. So there have been already been a couple since then, and I believe the first season has 10 or 12. But let's start with Act 1. You want world building? How about 10,000 worlds of building? So... The galaxy, it's ruled by the Imperium, a political entity that has existed for 12,000 years. This galactic empire has, I think, 8 trillion people. There was another moment where they say 40 trillion. It was a little vague on this. Let's just say trillions of people. And is ruled from the planet Trantor. The ruling family is actually three clones of King Cleon I. Dawn, Day, and Dusk. Dawn is the young one, as you can imagine. Day is the sort of prime leader, and Dusk is the older one. Dawn notes that the staff seems to be scared of screwing up in front of the three of them, which implies they're not necessarily getting the most candid advice. And they are dealing with a minor kerfuffle on the outer reach between tribute planets Anacreon and Thespin. Meanwhile, meet Gal Dornick from Synax, a simple spiritual planet that seems to consist mostly of water and a hatred of science, which might be why the ocean levels are so high there. She is a brilliant mathematician who has solved the Abraxas conjecture. In so doing, she wins the prize of working with Professor Hari Selden of Streeling University on Trantor. She has a fun journey there, consisting of meeting a man named Gerald on an Imperial jump ship, and then a 16-hour trip down humanity's tallest elevator, the Sky Bridge. Selden's adopted son, Raish, takes Gale to meet Selden at the Imperial Library, which looks like a pretty awesome Irish library. They have a pleasant chat that turns hella dark when Selden informs Gale that they'll likely all be arrested tomorrow because of his work in psychohistory. <laughs> and here I'm quoting what psychohistory is, because we're going to be talking about this, a, pr- a predictive model designed to forecast the behavior of very large populations. He's predicted something pretty dire for the Imperium. Gale is there as bait because Hari knows the Imperium will ask her to disprove him. Anna, that was a pretty weird conversation in that library. Also, they keep contradicting themselves about what mathematics was <laughs> and was not. Is that conversation lifted straight from Asimov? And what does math mean for you? I like that that last question's kind of just like a philosophical one. <laughs> yes, <Dan>. exactly. <laughs> well, that's at, at the level what of this broadcast. What does math mean for exactly. you? I don't remember if that's what Asimov says, although he does the same kind of weird nomenclature trick, I would mm-hmm. say, in calling shit math. That's, that's not, not math. math. <laughs> Let's be very clear. This is not math. Not only do they not show us in any way that it's math, but it, the, what this thing is supposed to do is not math. Right. Well, let, let, let's put it this way. There would be math in it, but it is not yes. math. Yes. Oh, 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 completely. That, yeah. It involves data. Yeah. It is big data. It's social it, to science, To the extent though. it resembles any kind of existing science yeah. or something that could be science, it's big data. Right. It actually resembles actuarial science and risk management, mm-hmm. which are two places you see a lot of big data. And the point of those two disciplines is to predict. So at one point they say 8 trillion sample size. That is not a sample size. (laughs) That is the population. And studying populations is social science, not science. 
It's so what Dan? Yes, it is. And Dan, how good is political science at predicting the behavior of large populations? Let me put it this way. <laughs> we've got we've got some we've got some work to do, Anna. We are nowhere near there are let me put it this way. There are people who will claim they're very confident about what they're predicting. But no one would claim, oh, yeah, this is a certainty. This is going to happen. And for a variety of reasons, which we will get into. But it's a bizarre thing that somehow this is painted in the show and in Asimov's book clearly as mathematics or psychohistory, when in fact, point of fact, it is clearly social science. And then I'll just say this because I think it's important to note about the series, which is the thing that they're describing is fortune telling. Mm -hmm. It is as realistic it's not for- as anything in a fantasy novel where you have a prophecy. I was going to say, it's prophecy. It's not fortune telling. It's prophecy. Yeah, it's prophecy. That's, yeah. But it's the same thing as if like, you know, the, the wizard comes down from the mountain mm-hmm. and says the third son of the seventh king will bring down the empire. Yeah. Like, Basically. that's the level of like so-called science. It's just kind of more flattering, I think, to readers to call it math. <laughs> you know what? Readers are listening to the science on it. All right, let's move on to Act 2. I'm out of order. This whole Imperium is out of order. (laughs) So, whoa, it turns out Selden was right, and he and Gale are arrested for high treason. At the trial, which is broadcast live to the entire planet of Trantor, apparently, the prosecutor accuses Selden of sowing panic with his theory. Selden, again on a live broadcast, then predicts the collapse of the Empire within five centuries, followed by 30,000 years of darkness. Wouldn't you know it, only another mathematician who understands ordinal theory could confirm his predictions. <laughs> Selden explains that he's, quote, trying to soften the fall, end quote, by constructing a foundation, get it, of galactic knowledge, the Dark Ages could be shrunk from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. Okay, okay, okay. A math thing, yeah. real quick. He posits that psychohistory predicts large populations, right. and yet it's fine enough yeah. to make a judgment about what's going to happen whether or not Hari gets executed. Yeah, it, that's I. So. Yes, yes. No, no, no. It's total bullshit. <laughs> we're 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 just we're just in hand waving parts here. Not going to deny that. Okay, wait, wait. Magic, magic, magic. It's it's prophecy. Okay. okay. So Gail meets Gerald again, and whoa! It turns out Gerald is a spy. Gerald asks Gail to say that Selden's theory is wrong, and the Empire will then show its gratitude. He argues that Selden is likely wrong, and makes some valid points, frankly, on Selden having an opaque theory and the benefits <laughs> of not freaking out the public. I'm just going to say I'm Team Gerald on this one. Gerald is absolutely right on those points. Gerald gives uh, Gail Selden's prime radiant, which is the proof, but in pretty light form. Crystal ball. It's yeah. his crystal ball. That's what it is, Dan. Uh, To examine, and she is able to open it. On the second day of the trial, when questioned, Gail says Selden's calculations are actually correct. Looks bad for our mathematicians, but then suicide bombers from Anacreon and Thespin destroy the sky bridge in spectacular fashion. A hundred million dead, one golden god statue obliterated, and as one of the uh, Cleons puts it, the tether wrapped around the planet like a garrote. The... Cleons decide that rather than to kill Selden and Dornick, they will be exiled to Terminus, a planet on the Outer Reach. And you're not going to believe this, Anna, but that was always the plan. Selden wanted to be on Terminus, out of the Imperium's reach, but nonetheless, you know, somewhat under their protection. Anna, I have many, many, many questions, including why broadcast this live? Okay, that seems galactically stupid. If you are honestly worried about the planet freaking out, I'm pretty sure the worst thing to do is to have Selden saying, oh yeah, you're all fucked. Also, 
It's not clear what Selden has and has not said publicly up until this moment, so that might be part of my confusion. I think he's written a book. We know that he's written a book. We don't know whether it's popular or not. And also, finally, they keep talking about his many, 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 many followers. We never fucking see them! There is a lot of referencing, but not a lot of seeing, Anna. Sorry, I had to get that out of my system. So this is a major flaw. But for another reason that you did not mention, which is... In the book, I don't think this quote is in the series, but in the book there is a, I believe I'm almost directly quoting, where they say, if a population finds out about mm-hmm. the prediction, then it fucks Which, the prediction. Which, by the way, that's actually good social yeah. science. That is correct. That is good social is science. Correct. This seems like a major yeah. flaw in the science of psychohistory. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> and also, if you believe that, you wouldn't want to publish a no, book. No, you really wouldn't. <laughs> nope. Nope, 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 nope. None of this makes sense to me. I'm sorry. This is piss poor social science we're seeing on display here. You wouldn't want to have yeah. followers because that would fuck with your prediction. Right, you suddenly have right? agency. It's a thing. That's yeah. a problem. So in a way, like, let's say Selden did follow his own dictates and not publish and not promote his theory broadcasting the trial would be kind of brilliant <laughs> oh and that's in the sense of like by publicizing it, you have changed the source yeah, yeah. It, the cleons would have done like a really smart like game of thrones level right. kind yeah. of faint right like actually it would have be been really better cool. is if they had broadcast is... it and Selden didn't know they were broadcasting it until at the end and then he realizes oh checkmate i've been checkmated by the cleons you know dan there are so many like tv shows and, and movies that where we should have been hired to write the script i don't know why <laughs> Our talents are being wasted on it. I think I tend to agree. Yeah, I know. All right. Also, the thing about the followers is that it also suggests, not suggests, sorry, it tells us that there is a world in which people are like, oh my God, the math is so compelling. (laughs) Look at this math. Do you think think there were Selden cons before this trial where like people would go, it's like, what's your favorite part of the Selden book? Oh, totally. It's like chapter five. I mean, the math there is mind blowing. And Selden himself is not, I mean, he's portrayed by one of my boyfriends, Jared Harris, super magnetic, compelling actor, but he is played as not being compelling, if that makes sense. He's like, played as world I think it's one of the, be the way to put it. And, and one of the great things yeah. about the performance is that he's not especially charismatic in right. that world. He is a charismatic actor yeah. to watch, but he is not like a flamboyant. He's not played leader. as dynamic in the, in the personal perspective of the right. show. Yes. Which I was going to say makes it very unrealistic that he had followers. <laughs> but Ross Perot did get 19% of the vote. So people do sometimes follow non-charismatic, math-driven, or at least numbers-driven men. And sometimes yeah. women, I guess. Maybe not. And it, we could talk... I, I think we'll probably discuss this after we've talked about the whole arc. But, you know, in general, this series benefits from having to be yeah. filmed. Right? The places where it falls apart are the places where it just has to hand wave, you know, and not be able to show us why a thing exists or or what its purpose is. This is something where, like, I'm I'm legitimately puzzled because they spent a fair amount of money on this adaptation. It would be safe to say there's a lot of ways in which this is really very pretty to look at. All you needed was, like, one crowd scene in which, like, Selden is being taken to court and there are actually people who are pro-Selden or something. It shouldn't have been that hard. Yeah. To sh- like, it would have been 10 seconds of film. But, like, they don't do that. And that, that was very frustrating for me. And to be clear, there are doomsday yeah. cults, right? I mean, yeah. there are. 
And there are numerology doomsday cults. But this particular form of prediction seems so Mm -hmm. esoteric. (laughs) And it's not something you can necessarily, although I guess we're proven wrong later, it doesn't seem at first to be something you can build a religion around. But maybe one of the points of this story is that you can build a religion Oh, yeah, I think that's true, which actually leads us very nicely into Act 3. Everything about Terminus is unfair. So, Hari, Gale, Raish, and the colonists are on a five-year mission to Terminus and are prepping in various ways. Gale is swimming a lot, counting primes, and, oh, hooking up with Raish, because sure, why not? They're very pretty. Everyone is trying to plan out the colony, recognizing it's going to be very hard. A pregnant lady decides to keep her child rather than store the embryo, even though that's apparently the safer play. Gail tells Raish that she's looked into the Prime Radiant and that Hari might not have finished the math, which seems like a really super important (laughs) plot point that maybe should have come up at the trial. I don't know. This is just me speaking. And a problem with the whole thing, right? Like, do you just have to, at every moment, re-enter data? Because... Yeah. Okay. Anyway, this does leave some uncertainty in his model of galactic civilization for millennia to come. Meanwhile, on Tranter, everyone is still grieving from the terrorist attack on the Starbridge. Dusk urges restraint, but he's also been acting a little more senile as of late. Day decides to kill the delegations from Anacreon and Thespis and bombard both planets. The Trantor crowd cheers him on. Oh, and we also learn that their trusty aide Demerzel is a sentient robot, apparently the only one in this galaxy. I'm just assuming that Frank Herbert's Butlerian Jihad invaded this multiverse <laughs> as well. Um, sort of like grand sci-fi what-if scenario kind of thing. They do discuss the oh, robot okay. good, war. Good. So. Anna, the parallels between religion and mathematics, as we just talked about, were pretty clear before this episode, but I kind of feel like David Goyer was repeatedly hammering viewers with a giant shovel uh, to drive home this point in the second episode. Is this a fair analogy to make? So, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think you can build a religion around mm-hmm. almost anything, right? Like, that is something that history yes. tells us. You know, if you can imbue something with faith and magic. And my kind of personal relationship to this, I, I okay. have a story, which is when I was in high school, so sometime in the late 80s, the New Yorker published a real long read called The Mountains mm-hmm. of Pi. And it was about these two, I believe, Russian brothers who were building their own supercomputer to try and find a pattern in Pi. Huh. Okay. And I believe they were... I know they were Jewish. I'm trying to remember, like, I believe they were observant Jews. And and that is Mm -hmm. important because the kind of underlying theme of that article was the amount of faith that Mm -hmm. they have to believe that there is some kind of order in pi, Mm -hmm. right? And that just struck me so deeply as, like, a (laughs) 16-year-old. The idea that you would have to have faith in something, like, that seems like you couldn't ever pr- like that mm. seems random right that that you would have so much faith to look at the world and still say i believe there is order here yeah right and i remember going to my dad who's a mathematician as we said and also happens to be an atheist and and asking him about this and he was just so just does not compute about it as it were like it's almost like he He understood the point I was trying to make, but for him, like, math just is, right? right? I I would add something here, which is, I think, fascinating. And I I, I was having dinner recently with someone who's a scientist, and we were talking about, 
you know, our faiths, actually. And she said something really interesting to me, which is that as a, a doctor, she totally believes in God because she literally sees on a daily basis the beauty and intricacy that is the creation of life. And it occurred to me that as a social scientist, I am not, I'm agnostic. And I think part of that might be because I look at human weakness, as it were, in terms of, and so I don't quite see the same sort of things in terms of beauty. But it is interesting to note that I think, I think a greater proportion of scientists tend to be believers than in the general population in the United States. I think deists. Yes. Deists would be a better way. Be yes. right word. Or yes. theists. Yes. Um, as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I am in recovery, in AA recovery, and you have to turn over your will to mm-hmm. a higher power. And that scares a lot of people away from AA. And it does imply, and what scares them is this idea that there is a higher power that controls right. things, right? And I just want to offer that I think that this is a more generous description of faith and, and maybe the kind of faith. It's, it's sort of the kind of faith that I have, although I do believe in God. I don't believe in what I've called a bellhop God. <laughs> like, and you can, that, ring, you you can know, ring in the God and say, oh, yes, what can I do for you today? Yeah. Right. Or, or that can maybe a concierge right. yes, God yes. that like can like tell you like, oh, go right. this way, go that way. Like, you know, if you yeah. want this, do that. But I do believe, and this is the only thing that AA requires, that I do not control mm-hmm. the universe. That something greater than myself. And you know what? That would actually unite. That Orders would unite both scientists and social scientists, actually. So I like that way of, of framing it. Yeah. In AA, sometimes they just say the only higher power you need is not I. Fair enough. You also had some thoughts on the birth directive, I believe, Anna. Oh, God, Dan. (laughs) It's pretty terrible. At least what we know about it is pretty terrible. And it's as anti-choice as anything we're going through Mm -hmm. here in Texas. Are they forcing women to turn over their fetuses? That is bad. Let's just say Totally That's fair. bad. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, it does strike me that this is the problem with any kind of plan and colony of this sort of, I mean, sure. you, you kind of sure. have to go there, unfortunately, which I, I'm not saying I approve of. Yeah. Or, but again, so it's sort of what we know about mm-hmm. it is bad. If it is voluntary, mm-hmm. you know, if it is somehow something that they've decided each person has like bought into. But also we know that that isn't the case because one woman yeah. wants to keep her fetus. It is sometimes I, I um. My goal in life is to get people to stop saying pro-life ah, mm-hmm. and start saying pro-forced mm. birth. <laughs> and that is what this Fair policy enough. is. Yes. I will say this, though. One of the things I did like about this concept, which was interesting to me, was the idea that they're on this very high-tech ship, but they're all very aware that in the ne- five years from now, they're going to be living in extremely harsh conditions, which w- creates a sense of foreboding, which I actually thought was, was well done on this particular episode. Just to offer a couple more thoughts on the on the yeah. forced birth thing. The problem with it is that they don't give us any information about what's going to happen right. to these fetuses, right? Like, who's going to raise them? Do you have to raise the I fetus? Would so. Like, if it's yours, are you responsible yeah. for it? If it's not, then yeah. what happens? <laughs> you know, who gestates it? Like, at some point, like, do you put, they, they match it with the, the original mother? Anyway, lots of questions. And what we do know about it strikes me as hideously controlling and misogynistic. Agreed. So, let's All move right, on. let's close with Act 4, the prologue and the epilogue. I have omitted the prologue and epilogue for these two episodes uh, until now. <laughs> we see Terminus, the, the show starts with Terminus 35 years after most of the events that I've discussed so far. There is now a colony on Terminus, and there is also something called The Vault, which functions kind of like... Like the monolith in 2001, it just sort of emits a null field, making it impossible for colonists to approach it without fainting. Some kids taunt each other to go, and hey, guess what? They all faint. 
One of the kids is rescued by Warden Salver Harden, who apparently can approach the vault without getting dizzy. I'm betting on it that means something in the future. Just to assume that's a significant fact. Meanwhile, back to the main narrative. Gail knows something is wrong after seeing Raish and Hari bicker at dinner on the ship. She goes to see them and finds Raish pretty much cold-bloodedly murdering Harry. Raish grabs Gail, puts her in an escape pod with the knife he used to stab Harry, and ejects the pod. Anna, I don't know what the fuck this means. It just (laughs) seemed like to come out of nowhere, but I will grant you it's a plot development. So... In general, again, because you did read the book, Anna, I will ask you. Uh, Again, and again, just don't remember much of it, but sure, go ahead. So I think from (laughs) the conversations I've seen online, it seems like there's a general agreement that Goyer messed around a fair amount with the details. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand, the details that he actually added are the ones that I like the most. Like the idea of the genetic legacy of the uh, Cleons was something that apparently he came up with. Do you think he kept too little, too much, or just enough of Asimov in this adaptation? I'm going to go back for a second and talk about the murder. <laughs> Please, because, uh, like, what the fuck? What the because, fuck? So I joked with Dan before we taped uh, that I actually prepared for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike usually. And one of the things I did was rewatch uh, the mm-hmm. first two episodes. Because the murder confused the okay, fuck good. out of me, too. Like, it just yeah. comes out of nowhere. And, like, what, what, what? I think I know what okay. happened. Which is, it comes after the scene where Hardin meets Gail in the mm-hmm. orchard and someone calls him by his yes. first name. <laughs> and that really bothers him, which of course is just a professorial <laughs> thing, right? We do not let the students call us by our first names. But also, I think he realizes if he becomes just another mm-hmm. person that they won't follow his directives with the same attention. I That was my supposition as well. But Anna, are you telling me the math alone would not be compelling? <laughs> I am shocked, and shocked also, at this. And also, this is one of those, a single action by a single person yes. can make a difference to the flow of history, which, yes, that happens. <laughs> See, I, I would say it's not in the order. I think it's partly when he calls Sorry by his first name. I think it also happens after Gail mentions, by the way, I was checking the math, and you know what? There's a lot of different contingencies that could you know, happen. It turned out the math wasn't <laughs> complete. So that's when you need to suddenly turn Hari into a, a martyr, as it were. As for the loose adaptation, I think a lot of times adaptations can benefit mm-hmm. from throwing away yes. the source material. Um, the examples that I came up with, The Shining, which I, I believe I've mentioned on the show before, as being pretty much a completely different story than the book. And I love both of them equally. I like the book a little more, but not for reasons having to do with their artistic merit, but more just like the book is closer mm-hmm. to my heart. Also, Lord of the Rings. Not slavish, no. <laughs> and in fact, yeah, yeah. thank God, right? We don't need the pages and pages of like Elvish or Tom Bombadil for that matter. And whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And then uh, someone someone else I was I did do a little research. The Godfather mm-hmm. is a great example as well. Wonderful source material. People really like that book. It's a little trashy, I understand, but it is right. not the movie, right? I applaud him for the changes that mm-hmm. he made. And I think he said in an interview uh, one of the reasons they did the Cleon cloning is to keep a consistent character. <laughs> I, it, 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 that actually makes sense to me, but also... And yeah. it totally makes sense, yeah. and no, I'm glad I think, he did I, it. I was actually like, one of his brighter moves. And also casting Lee Pace in that role is very good also. 
He's very oh, he's good so good. Like he's just very, very good. I, I like that. I get also to they found a, him, an older sure. actor. I think his name is Terrence Mann. Who I swear to God, like when I first watched this, I thought, oh, so that's just Lee Pace in like aging makeup or something. Like, and it's not. It's a different person. I mean, we didn't go over this. I do have questions about the whole yeah, yeah. cloning thing and how exactly it works with personality mm-hmm. and variations, mm-hmm. as it were, because. It's an interesting experiment yeah. to do. I think yes. you would agree to see if everyone grows up to be exactly mm-hmm. the same as right. the last one. But we're shown that there are slight variations. So interesting. It's almost like environment <laughs> might condition your personality or something. Who knows? Hmm. Well, we have discussed yes. the plot in great detail. Dan, I have one. Go ahead, Anna. Is there IR in the show? Anna, I have crunched the numbers, and it's not a theory. It's a fact. There is IR in this show. Let's start with how Foundation talks about modeling the social sciences. And Foundation gets some things right and gets a lot of things wrong. So what it gets right. Is it possible to model human behavior using mathematics? Absolutely. There are plenty of, you know, economics models, political science models, sociological models, actuarial models, you name it. You know, you can absolutely do that. And furthermore, a good model not only can be proven wrong, it has to be proven wrong. In the sense that a good model must be falsifiable. If it's not falsifiable, it's not a model anymore. It's ideology. Um, and so that's really important. Or magic. Or magic. Yes. So yeah. what does it get wrong? <laughs> All right. Strap in, everyone. I've got a long list here. No. Where to start? The, the conversations about math are just awful. Like, they keep saying mathematics is this and mathematics is not is not that. And it literally contradicts itself in the span of five minutes. It drove me nuts. They sure bend the rule a little bit in terms of whether math can predict individuals or not because, you know, Selden says, no, no, I can only predict large populations, and yet he predicts he's going to get exiled rather than killed. That seems like a really highly specific individual prediction there. So just motherfucking drove me nuts. Okay. Other things it gets wrong. No social science model would ever be as perfectly predictive as Selden's model is. There is simply too much complexity in the world. Furthermore, the way to think about this is, you know, in physics, there is often a concept called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in which the act of observing something has an effect, independent effect on what you are observing, which therefore means you can never perfectly observe it. The same is true of social science. If Selden were to make a prediction that everyone believed that the, you know, the empire was going to fall, that in and of itself alters the course of history. It does not mean that predictive models do not exist, but at best, most social science predictive models are predictive about imminent events. So, like, think about Nate Silver in 538 and trying to predict the 2020 election or the 2016 election. That's an entirely appropriate use of big data and, and math to make a prediction. Can that sort of thing predict what's going to happen in 2040? No, not even remote. It's just way too much time. You can't do that. The best analogy I would make is to weather prediction. Um, the further you go out, the harder it is to predict. So models are and should be judged by their accessibility also. Uh, you know, in the in the show, it's the idea that it's so abstruse that no one can, can understand it. Articulating an abstruse theory actually makes it way harder to falsify, which is one reason Foucault irritates the living fuck out of me sometimes, because you can never be entirely sure what Foucault is saying and what it's not. Finally, there is one particular line that drove me nuts here where, you know, I think it was Harry who says, mathematics does not take a side. That is correct. But you know what does take a side? Fucking models do. Okay? Whatever assumptions you bring to the table 
when you are creating a model, will inevitably color your analysis. And you have to make simplifying assumptions in any model of social science. Otherwise, it's not a model. It's just too hideously complex. Therefore, all models have biases. The good ones are upfront about it. I think I figured out what bothers me about the whole 8 trillion yes. sample size. Besides the fact yes. that's not a sample, is that it seems like the larger sample you have, the less specific your predictions can be. Like, because, like, we take all the people in the world and try to say, like, if you take a, a, a mm -hmm. city and want to say, like, this is kind of what might happen with the government, unless just, like, political science, you're like, this is a strong leader, or they have a, a, they have a city council and not a mayor, and we've seen mm -hmm. this happen in cities without city councils, yeah. right? Or, right? Um, without mayors. If you take the world and try to predict what kind of leadership will emerge. I don't think No, not really. Um, <laughs> and it, again... The, the, you know, because it's, it's, it's the life-size map of the also world again, problem. Also, again, if you're creating a theory or a model, you automatically have to simplify. That's not what Selden is claiming he's yeah. doing. He's saying, no, 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 I've got the whole thing. And again, like the whole prime radiant thing where like you see the model. The, and I understand why Goyer is trying to make this visual, but like essentially it's just like a whole bunch of little lights. It, it was, I actually laughed the first time I saw it. It was, it was vaguely absurd. I regret that I didn't come with this earlier. It is Borges' life-size map of the world. It becomes yeah. useless. A model becomes right. useless if you're incorporating every yeah, piece of data. It's not a model. You're just trying to describe the world and you're not, it's not going to work. Now, the one thing I will say that I thought Foundation did get right pretty well was the idea of imperialism as a governing construct. It does a pretty good job of presenting what an empire would look like. So most empires have what we would consider a central metropole, um, a sort of core area where those are the people who have full citizenship rights and are generally sort of thought of as the elite. Um, we see that in the form of Trantor. Imperial authorities generally provide public goods that facilitate control, like security and transportation. Again, we see this in Foundation. Empires have asymmetric and variegated relations with different territories and localities. So they might exercise direct control over some areas, but they have a more tributary arrangement uh, with the periphery. We saw this, for example, in China during the imperial age. The idea of China was the sort of middle kingdom. There were a variety of tributary kingdoms that were independent, but nonetheless had to offer tribute to China. That was called the Tian Sha system. Um, we see parallels to that with the outer reach. Similarly, the sort of whole concept of imperial overstretch, this is articulated most famously by Paul Kennedy in Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. We see this thesis expressly stated by Selden when he tells one of the Cleons, you're stretched too thin. And I know I've said this before, I will say it again. The effect of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire on sci-fi is in and of itself a thesis that needs to be written if it has not been written already. And then finally, uh, most empires do try to socialize elites from other lands in order to make them loyal to the metropole rather than loyal to their local area. And it does seem like this is an area where, the, in fact, the Imperium falls down or is like overconfident because they somehow think that like the people from the two outer lying, outer reach planets are going to be impressed by like the mausoleum, and they're really not. It doesn't work all that well. Right. Um, so that is actually a good hint that uh, things are amiss. You know, it's funny, Dan, because. Um what you're saying there about yeah. empire, it reminds it me does. of something. Uh, is, is there a question I need to ask, Anna? Anna, yes. did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this show? Oh, well, Dan. <laughs> you know, this is one of those that's admittedly, much like the empire itself, a bit mm -hmm. of a stretch. But 
I've just noticed this as a trend that I should have noticed in my early teens, how many sci-fi worlds just kind of hand wave about the technology and class and the mechanics Mm -hmm. of capitalism. Like, we don't see money change hands. We don't have a sense of, like, what the rules and regulations are. We don't know how the empire gets its money, you know? And I think Star Trek probably does the kind of best at this because they just are like, the hand wave is, oh, post-scarcity. Exactly. Like, whoops, it just is. You just, we don't, we're no scarcity Which drives economists nuts, but it is a nice, easy, convenient mechanism to say, yeah, we're just, we're not going to deal with that. Yeah. And in this world, it does seem like you have the technology to be post-scarcity, which doesn't mean you don't have classes, right? But it's just something they kind of skip over. And that's, whatever. I'm not going to demand that all science fiction plots deal with this. (laughs) But the other thing I thought about in in thinking about economics and this world is that it's supposedly 12,000 years (laughs) of the same Mm -hmm. political system. Dan, I know you don't have Hardin's model, but could you offer a prediction about the stability of an empire over 12 years? Not going to happen, Anna. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. Nope. And that's true. I mean, and part of it has to do with the economics of it too, right? Like how expensive it would be. Like what is, again, you have to ask, like, is this basically magic? Like when you send the warships to the outer reach, like how convenient is that? Like if that's the way you keep control of the Right, there's no, I mean, part of the problem here is there's no discussion of budget. There's no discussion of do... Not that I want a discussion of budget in every movie. (laughs) But there's also no discussion of like, is the empire actually popular or not? Do yeah. people in the outer reach recognize there are benefits of, of, you know, not messing with the empire? And and truthfully, you don't, we just don't know. Which I, I, admittedly is and, hard to also film, I suppose, but but not entirely. Not uh, impossible. Right. And to get to the like actual Marxist yeah. analysis here, the other reason you might not find stability over 12,000 years is that people want yeah. change. Like, yeah. <laughs> as Marx posited, right? Like, there is a theory that people cycle through these things. And it's hard to, again, unless we know what kind of stranglehold the empire has on its people, it is really hard to believe. See, it's funny. You go you go to coercive power. My thought is is more soft power. In other words, it's the question of... Yeah, that has to... That, this is the way, is no, no, but, but, it, but it is the question <laughs> of like, I mean, hard, there's no denying there are hard coercive capabilities. It could be soft power yeah. too. But I think even soft power though... If you have any kind of class system, yeah. any kind of class system, you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have have yes. nots, right? And there is gonna be some way that you need to satisfy. And there's the no, there is literally no discussion of the have nots at any point in the first two episodes. Yeah. And, and maybe that'll happen in the future. They're, They're implied, implied, but like again, it's the it's, telling, not showing, and it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not a super like sophisticated analysis. I do think it's something that I now want to think about more as we do hmm. this show, which is this idea of what kind of systems are these worlds employing to keep people hmm. unequal, right? If they're saying that there is inequality, <laughs> which almost every show does, again, yeah. except for Star Trek, where basically they just like- And nope, even Star Trek time. episodes occasionally dip, dip into that. <laughs> It's just right, the aliens right. that have it. So anyway, that's, uh, that is comes from my feelings about capitalism, if not exactly a critique Fair of enough. capitalism. 
Up to yeah, Dan. Oh, oh my god, oh my god. The sky bridge. Oh, it is falling, it's falling, it's falling. Individual people are falling in the atmosphere oh. and they look like comets. Yes. We're we in the are. debris field. And this is where we talk about the things we didn't get to talk about earlier. Dan, what So actually speaking of the sky bridge falling, um, I will say that the, the special effects and the cinematography in this show are gorgeous. Now that is often code for there's nothing much happening, but it really, there is some spectacular scenery that is filmed on this and, and really worth watching. Speaking of the Skybridge collapsing, uh, at one point, Gail and Selden are being let off and Gail says that something is wrong with the Skybridge. And I kind of wanted to know, how did she know that? Because, like, this is before the bomb goes off and looking at it, like, it didn't seem terribly problematic. I was just like, that's a really cool trick that she pulled off. Just sort of a cluing in of, of you know, how you know the Empire is doomed is the fact that everyone is named, all the, the kings are named Cleon. The name, the name <laughs> of Cleon comes from the history of the Peloponnesian War, in which Cleon is a bloodthirsty Athenian general who continually uh, urges uh, invasion, but nonetheless displays cowardice at various times, and he's eventually killed. Um, but he's easily like the most cartoonish character in that history. So I think you're probably correct about why Harry was killed. But I, as a professor, I was ridiculously amused at the idea that he was upset that no one called him doctor, that suddenly people stopped calling him doctor. Because if you're in that setting, I would have been like, you can call me Dan now. Like, we're not in we're not in class anymore. This isn't a graduate <laughs> seminar. We're trying to build a world. Let's do some nice team building. And then finally, I do yeah. think my single favorite line reading in the entire two episodes was Lee Pace saying at some point, well, that's a convenient data point for your side. That is a great piece of dialogue, and he milks that for all it's worth. I just love that. Anna, what about you? Uh, it is a very pretty show. I have believe I've seen some reporting on how much Apple is spending on these things, and they, they have the, the money coin. for yeah, it. Yeah, there's so, no denying that. You know, they're not spending money on labor in China. They are spending money on um, yes. these shows. Uh, I also, this is a line that we, are, we already uh, referenced, but when uh, Gail says the maths aren't complete, <laughs> yeah, no shit. That's a devastating you know? peer like, review report is all I'm going to say. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, here's your one sentence referee report. The maths aren't complete. If you have a predictive model. And you don't like, have the complete it, maths, that's a problem. Yeah. Could be an issue. Yeah, just, yeah just, it is. Yeah, it is. And then as far as also the math being complete, you're always going to need new data to predict mm. new things, right? So where's that data coming from? <laughs> the thought I had was maybe Facebook, <laughs> but, you know, where else are you going to get that much information about trillions of people? So anyway, we could, again... Yes. We could probably. I will say this. I, I, I think but, I am going to watch the rest of this season, to be fair. Like, it does still hook me, but there, there are issues. Yeah. The acting is really good, even though Jared Harris mm -hmm. uh, got killed. And I have right. questions about what's going to happen. Like, the fact that it's not a slavish mm -hmm. adaptation means. And I would also you know, add, by the way, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, there were no female characters in Asimov's version. Oh, oh, and thank you. Yes. They, Sorry. They have clearly <laughs> taken some of the characters that were in the book and turned them, you know, made them women. And that really works for me. I don't know about you. Like, you know. Yeah, this is going to be a thing I brought up in the Asimov is a yeah. creep section. But you're right. Like, I remember reading mm. the book and being like, am I going to find a, a her? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, is someone going to even I, and I believe there is like, literally like a someone that is like comes in and is referred to as a female. And that's like how you know, mm. females exist <laughs> in this world. So no, we could go on. Let, let's let's go to something more positive, Anna. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about Ted Lasso. 
spoilers for episode 10. I will briefly go over the main plots. For an episode with a fairly simple structure, there are a lot of plots referenced at the very least. So there's Rebecca and Sam, which everyone who listens to this podcast knows. (laughs) I feel very, very negatively about that. I do not like it. Then there's the fact that Rebecca knows that her father cheated on her mother and how that impacts Mm. that relationship. We have Keely struggling with the concept of death or how we how we feel about death and grief versus Roy's (laughs) feelings about Mm -hmm. death and grief. Uh, And he has one of the great lines. Cheer up, Keely. It's a funeral. (laughs) We get into Ted and the lasting impact of his Mm -hmm. dad's suicide, which it's weird to call it a favorite <laughs> arc, but I think it's something they're doing yeah. really, really well. I do wish that they had um, information about Lifeline mm-hmm. um, or other suicide prevention in the show. A lot of news organizations now do that when they and talk a lot about of, suicide. A lot of fictional TV um, does that too. When they, yeah. and a lot of fiction does it well. And also we learned at the very end that Jamie mm-hmm. still loves Keely. So, Dan, what'd you like? I liked a few things from this episode. I very much like Keely's funeral dress. She looked great. And I loved Rebecca's hat. So, you know, just that's my comments on fashion. Uh, I love that this was an episode that featured Sassy because any episode that features Sassy is automatically a good episode. So, you know, she's just a delightful character and really does wonderful things, including apparently lifting Ted's spirits, as it were. The thing I also liked, very importantly, was Sharon charging Ted for a house call, which was entirely appropriate. And again, points out the myriad ways. And this is actually... One of my favorite things about this season is how they've dealt with Sharon as someone who is simultaneously a professional who is good at her job and therefore deserves to be remunerated for it or remunerated for it. I didn't like much after that. I'm not going to lie. You know, like some of the stuff was like amusing in the moment, you know, the whole conversation in the vicar's room. But like, I'm not sure that was entirely appropriate. I could have done without. And I'm going to say also about that conversation as a female person. I I suppose there's perhaps generational and cultural differences about how explicitly women talk about their sexual Mm -hmm. activity. But that was like, that was pretty explicit. And I, you know, in a public setting, sort of, not public, but in like a... Semi-public, yes. Where people, semi-public setting. Also a church, you know, I'm going to just like, you know, got to be respectful of local mores. I would be self-conscious about some of those yes, expressions, yes. let's say. And I yeah. was not crazy about the Rickroll thing. I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. I'm sorry. <sighs> I, yeah, there's a lot yeah. I didn't like. Do you want to start with what um, you didn't like on and then go to what you did like? Yeah. I'll start with what I didn't like. And I, uh, the Rickroll thing was amusing at first, but then you saw it coming like an avalanche yeah, down a mountain, yeah. right? Like it was just like, okay, they're setting up something. And of course, I mean, at, when they got to the funeral, I was like, okay, when they're going to yeah, sing? Yeah. When are they going to sing? Like <laughs> at some point, someone yeah. is going to sing. I also was bothered that they may have come up with the idea of the Rickroll before coming up with an excuse to sing at the funeral because it could be cool to have some pop mm. song that means a lot to you personally be the eulogy yeah. you give. But the <laughs> this song <laughs> it's completely inappropriate. Not, it's not just inappropriate. It just makes no sense. Like it just doesn't make yeah. sense that it, you would sing at a funeral. Anyway, I still don't like Rebecca and Sam. I also feel like 
Rebecca telling her mom, apparently for the first time, about her father's infidelity. Not only do I feel like that's bad form in general, like people listening, don't do that at a funeral. Don't be that. Right, to be clear, time you might want to do to that other. at some point, but not at the funeral. The yeah, funeral might sure. be... Yeah, sure. I would also really strongly talk it yeah, out with someone else about that's whether a good I move. want to do yeah. that. Because that's a good pro tip. Huh? Uh, all relationships, <laughs> thank you. All relationships mm-hmm. um, are different, and all marriages have their secrets. And sometimes, you know, what you think is secret isn't secret, as mm-hmm. is the case here. And sometimes those secrets yes. should be kept. So anyway, and I also don't think Rebecca would have done that. I don't think it's in her character to have made that choice mm, at the yeah. funeral. No, that's fair. I agree. Also, continue with Rebecca. When she tries to break up with Sam, it's so obviously a shitty reason to break up. Like, it's of all the reasons they might break up to tell him, you make me too happy. Like, Well, you can see what the problem is there, Anna. I mean, good Lord. And also, like, that's something that might come up in therapy. But, like, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to imagine being conscious that that's the reason I'm breaking up with somebody. I'm going to interject here to point out something I also did not like, which is and I'm going to have a column about this that'll be out by the time you all hear this. But um, the deification of Sam, I guess, would be the way to put it, which is Sam is a wonderful character and he's too goddamn wonderful because in response to that, he literally tells Rebecca, I'm only going to get more wonderful. Yes. is an yeah. awesome line that no 21-year-old man would ever say. And also, I feel like that's the wrong line. Like, if I'm Rebecca, and that is genuinely why yeah. I'm breaking up with him. Like, you but maybe not want to say, oh, yeah, and you're going to have even more problems because I'm going to get even better. You might want to say something like, I love you right. no matter what. The great thing about love is that we will find flaws in each other. Or just something like, let's just write it. I mean, anyway, there's this shitty yes. reason to break up with someone. And she has other non-shitty reasons like the to break fact up that with people. So she's his boss. So yes, yes. Yes, yes. Another mm-hmm. did not like is the second time they've used empty and not empty liquor bottles mm-hmm. scattered about as some kind of signifier for emotional turmoil. Fair enough. Speaking yeah. as an alcoholic, who does that? <laughs> like... Have you ever, I mean, I assume people listening, maybe even you, Dan, have been at a time in your life where you've used alcohol to numb your feelings. Did you leave liquor bottles just like around, like in that process? No no one does that. Not really. Like even the most, like to, (laughs) if you have any function at all as an alcoholic. You hide the booze. For one thing, also for one thing, there'd be no... Nothing left. Anymore. Trust me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh at that. Trust me. No, it's 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 funny. It's one of the yeah. ways you know you're an alcoholic. I remember. I mean, I drank oh bitters, my. Dan. Like, okay. yeah, I drank bitters when I ran out of everything else when I was trying wow. to drink in secret. Okay. So, I love it. That was actually my last drink, which I find a beautiful metaphor and one of the there reasons I don't want to relapse. Yes. So the likable things, the, the the things I liked. I also loved Sharon charging mm-hmm. uh, Ted. And to me, it says something that I don't know if this is an intentional engagement or not, but the show is engaging with yes. boundaries and offering some not that subtle comment 
on how it is healthy yes. to have boundaries. Which I think is appropriate for the show because Ted, particularly in season one, is a boundaryless character. And so like, I think in some ways it's a nice and, counterpoint to that. Yeah, and I'm hoping that maybe that is supposed to be yeah. a contrast here, that Ted needs right. to learn boundaries. You know, because it is clear that his lack of boundaries actually does connect yeah. back to his trauma yeah. as a child. And speaking yes. of that trauma, and again, as a suicide attempt survivor myself, something that really mm-hmm. connected with me is a, well, there are a few things. One is this idea that you can be intensely depressed and have suicidal ideations and seem mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. That it can seem right. like it came out of nowhere. And also that suicide is mm. selfish. And I don't mean that as a criticism of the person that commits suicide, but it feels incredibly selfish to the people yeah. you leave behind. And that it is okay to be angry Absolutely. about that. It is okay to be furious about it at yes. that person. No, I agree. And that fury and love can exist in the same place. Because human beings are complicated creatures that almost cannot be perfectly modeled. And I also loved a specific thing that Ted said, which is that he wishes his dad, if only he'd known he was good at stuff he didn't care he Mm. was good at. And that is something that was just connected with me in a really deep way because I feel like one of the things that I've had to grow and learn in building up Mm -hmm. my core which is kind of the thing that depression you know wears down is just your sense of self and your Mm -hmm. sense of self-worth and part of the journey of recovery is to build a right-sized version of yourself yeah right and one of the things you do is admit what you're good at (laughs) taking me literally years dan to like get to a place where I'm comfortable talking about what I'm good at and not being like laughing about it or oh, discounting wow. it or being self-deprecating about it and just be able to say like, hey, Dan, you know what? I'm really good at interviewing people. Yep. 10 years ago, I, I literally, I wouldn't be able to get that sentence out without doing something. Undercut to it. Yeah. Undermine it. Good for you. Yeah. And then Jamie references how dress shoes are meant for muggles, <laughs> which means that Jamie's a Harry Potter fan, mm-hmm. which I love. And then the team going that was to the very funeral, sweet, actually. You know, and I also like the conversation they had at the yeah. very beginning about the dress code. Yes, that was quite yeah. good. Done. Yeah, I really liked that. And so, Dan, what did we learn? Well, I learned three things learn? on it. Uh, I learned that boxer briefs are, in fact, just like clunky exposition, and that was the one element of the, the Sam Rebecca line that I plot line that I was very amused by. I learned that sometimes it's more important to be loving than to be right, and that's a pretty significant thing. And I think the most important thing I learned is that you know what, life can be very hard, and it is important to tell people that you care about them and that you appreciate them. And therefore, Anna, I want to thank you for dragging, you know, for for convincing me to be part of this podcast because it has been a wonderful thing for me to do. And I really appreciate that. And you are really good at podcasting, by the way. (laughs) And see, I almost don't want to laugh. I want to just be able to take that compliment. Well, Daniel, you know, you all got a little teary there. We might want to reserve some of the mutual um, fan club stuff for offline. But I also agree that if you love someone and if you appreciate someone, there is no time Mm. like the present. And it it, you don't need a reason. That's correct. To tell people. And so, yeah, I mean, Dan, this has been really important for me, too. So 
I will talk about yes. what I learned, though. I mean, I guess a Rickroll <laughs> saves everything. I mean, if you can just, like, get a Rickroll. It's just a convenient know, plot like, device. Everything's you know. better. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. At one point, Sharon, uh, when Ted is having a panic attack, she tells him to use four, mm-hmm. seven, eight breathing. I actually know what that is. I guess I want this is something I want mm-hmm. other people to learn. <laughs> it is a thing. It's sometimes called, I think, square breathing. And it's inhale for four counts, hold it for seven counts, exhale hmm. for eight counts. And it is one of those things, I guess there's some science somewhere, like it, it calms huh. your nervous system. I do know there is a lot of science behind oxygen being a calming thing. Like one of the reasons when we go into fight or flight mode, we're depriving ourselves a little bit of oxygen. So if you can just like okay. breathe, very good, um, it helps. And Dan, I learned something it was revolutionary <laughs> for the show. Dads can be good and Whoa. bad. Wow. Ah. There is. No <laughs> all right that's just about it for the show i will remind people that upcoming the new dune movie aliens which will be i think an interesting conversation i encourage people to go back and listen to our alien episode if they haven't already because i think our conversation about aliens will be significantly Mm -hmm. different than our conversation not that it's a bad movie movie. but it's just such a just a very different movie also upcoming we have yes waterworld for our schlock and awe series we would love some more suggestions for that by the way and then uh rate and review if you can hit us up on patreon if you can if not tell your friends and neighbors and also we love to hear from Mm -hmm. you in general so please do and now keep this channel open for more